Good morning, you guys. How's it going? Good morning. Okay, we'll, we'll try again. Good morning, you guys. How are you? I'm Pastor Josh Pollard. Uh, I'm the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. Really excited to be here with you guys this morning. Very excited. Uh, this week, we're going to be finishing up our study on Hebrews chapter 12. And we've been in a four-week study on this, this chapter called Endurance. And I think Pastor David uh, named it Endurance because, probably because he's a runner. I don't know if you knew that. He likes to run, uh, which I kind of like to run. I used to work for a bank, and they tried to get me to sign up for this 401k, and I don't like running that much. And so I said no. They said, you could have a lot of money at the end. I was like, I'm not going to win the race, so why would I do it? So I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> You know what you call the person that comes in last at those races? An ambulance, because they're probably in a lot of pain. You call them an ambulance. Uh, so, okay, endurance. Our series is called Endurance, right? The ability to withstand a trying time without collapsing. And today's passage is going to ask us to consider if what we value and what we believe and what we find our identities in uh, can truly endure. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29, and you can find those verses in your Renovation Church app by tapping on Bible and Weekly Verses, or you can use the Bible on your phone, or if you brought a paper Bible, Hebrews is kind of toward the back. Uh, this passage, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to break it down, and it's a bit of a longer passage, and parts of it might seem kind of confusing, uh, so I'll include a bit of commentary as I read to help clear up some of the more obscure references. And it's a pretty dense passage. You'll see that pretty quickly, I think. But don't worry, uh, because it's one of those kinds of passages where even if you don't get all the details along the way, you can still get the main point of the entire passage. So let's not lose the forest among the trees, as they say. Okay? Start by noticing that it comes in four main sections. Four main sections, with the uh, focus coming in verse 27 and the appropriate response, which we should have, coming in verse 28. So keep it up in front of you. It'll be on the screen also while we work through it for a few minutes, and let's see what it's about. Section 1, verse 18. Uh, it starts with a description of when God came to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, and he formed a covenant with them through Moses there. And referring to that episode, this is what the author of Hebrews says to the Christians that he's writing to. He says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So in this episode, back on Mount Sinai, God's authority and his power and his holiness are obvious. They're right there. They took God's word so seriously that they were terrified at the potential consequences of even accidentally ignoring them even just a little bit. They're terrified. But you'll notice that almost nothing in this description of this covenant is alive. Almost nothing, right? We have mountains. We have fire and darkness. 
We got trumpets. We got this feeling of don't come close. That's too much. Not, no, no more. No sound even. No, not even any words. We don't want to hear it. That's the feeling we get from the description of the first covenant. And we're going to compare that covenant, because he says that's not what we've come to. We're going to compare that description to the next section, which is a description of the new covenant, which comes through Christ. And its setting is not an earthly mountain like the first one, but it is the heavenly Mount Zion, which throughout the Old Testament represents the true seat of the living God, God's personal throne, his spot. It's not someplace he's just meeting up with some guy that's going to represent him later down on earth. This is his spot, right? It's a spot where his holiness doesn't need to push them away anymore, but where his sacrifice makes them righteous enough to come and gather around. So let's compare this one. He says, starting in verse 22, section 2, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. That's Christians. That's the church. That's us. We made it in the Bible. Cool, right? You have come to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that is, uh, righteous people in the past who have died. Uh, You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, you may recall that Abel, the third human in Scripture, Adam and Eve's son, uh, was murdered by his brother Cain. And so he was the first person in Scripture to die. His blood, spilt by murder, brought death into creation. It was the first introduction of death. That's what his blood says. The ultimate punishment for humanity's rebellion is first realized in Abel's blood. But the blood of Jesus, spilt by murder, brought life. The ultimate repair of humanity's rebellion begins with him. And that's why it is a better word than the blood of Abel's. And did you notice that in this second description, almost everything is alive? It's quite a contrast. We've got the living God. We've got thousands of joyful angels. We've got the church of the firstborn. We've got God the judge, spirits of the righteous, Jesus, and his sprinkled blood that speaks. What a contrast to the first covenant, right? This one's so much better. Now, It's important, though, we want to always make sure we point out that sometimes we mistakenly think the new covenant with Jesus and the old covenant from the Old Testament were opposites, that they didn't work together, they canceled each other out, they don't go together, but that's not true. They're not opposite sides of a valley or a coin or something. It's more like they're different chapters in the same book, okay, with the later one completing and building on and clarifying the first one. The same God wrote both. The same God made both covenants. The voice of God in the first one is the voice of God in the second one. So let's not put them at odds with each other. Remember that it is the same God. The God whose voice sparks reverence and terror and who gives commands over life and death in the first is the same living God, judge of all, surrounded by a joyful assembly in the second. His voice is heard in trumpets in the first, and his voice is heard in blood in the second. Same voice. So we should ask, well, 
It must be an important voice. How important is it that we listen to this voice now that we as Christians, remember this book is for us, have come to Mount Zion, to his sitting place? How important is is it that we listen? That takes us to section 3. starts in verse 25. It says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is, uh, through Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, on earth at the earthly mountain, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? That is, Jesus, mediator of the New Covenant, who reigns from heaven. So it's extremely important, obviously, that we listen to this voice. Right? The changed description from the first section to the second section should not lessen the seriousness with which we hear the commands of God, but instead it should build it up more. It should take it more serious. We're on his turf now. So we make sure we listen. Well, why? It says in verse 26, it says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The word once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So here we find the crux of the entire passage. Right? The big one is coming. The big one is coming. God is going to test the stability of everything that is, and we're going to see what shakes. Now, as a kid, uh, I grew up in California. Growing up in California, we had earthquake drills all the time at school, right? The bell would go off, and you would drop under your desk, and you'd cover your neck, and you'd hold on to the leg of the desk. Like, if the the building's coming down, that's going to protect you, right? So you're down there, and uh, they would drill this into us because you'd always have to be ready. You never know when the big one's going to hit. So you got to be ready, and you're down there covering up. Of course, as a kid, you're looking around going, man, if this building comes down, I'm going to have to save everyone. They're doing it all wrong. I'm the only one doing it right. They're all looking around. Mom's going to be so proud. Soul survivor. That's what I thought. So a few years later, though, I was 20-something, a newlywed. I had a decent job, a college degree, a car that worked. That's important. It worked. Life was easy, right? Stable. Reliable. It was holding on pretty well. And uh, I know that Minnesota has its fair share of extreme weather, but I can assure you that nothing is quite like waking up in the middle of the night with your entire house shaking around you like it's about to crumble on you. It's terrifying. It's disorienting. Your mind doesn't go to drop, cover, or hold. It goes to, I'm going to die. This is the end. Is this the big one? This is it right now? That's what your mind goes to. And the best way I can think to describe an earthquake is that it's kind of loud and quiet at the same time. It's really weird. It's like a picture of someone screaming. That's what it feels like. This earthquake hit at 11.43 p.m. And it was such a sudden pop 
of motion, that adrenaline kicks in immediately. And you jump out of bed and we tried to look around for somewhere to go. What are we supposed to do? We got to find something stable to get under, but there's no desk here. So what do we do? We get in, get in the bathtub. No, I think that's tornadoes. Get in a, a doorway. That doesn't seem right. Get down. I think it's a down in a ball by the wall. So you get down there and everything's shaking and shaking like it's a, an unbalanced washing machine on spin cycle. And it's just shaking, shaking, shaking. And then it stops. And there's no destruction. And there's no rescue crew to dig you out. You know, there's maybe a dog barking or a car alarm, but you get up off the ground and you try to go back to sleep because you're not dead. And it's weird how an experience like that stays with you. you know, more shakes than just the house in an earthquake. Every time a truck would go by for months, you tense up. You think it's happening again, an aftershock. Right? Or a, every time a, a door closes, you know, you tense up. And you put your glass a little further from the table, from the edge, just in case. Or you don't sit by the window, just in case. You got to be ready, you know. You realize that the world is shaky. You know, it all seems so sturdy until you realize the possibility for it to shake. And then it never seems quite sturdy enough again. Is what you are relying on sturdy or shakable? You know, for many people, 2020 has been an earthquake. And it has reminded us of how shakable everything is. Our jobs, our health, our friendships, our political system, our educational system, our daily routines, all the stuff that we, we, a lot of times we find our identities in it, and now it's shaken. They were all so trusted as sturdy, and yet we've been in a shaking house all year. Let it wake you up with spiritual adrenaline. The world is shaking. It has always been shaky, and it always will shake. And eventually it will be shaken so completely that everything shakable will be gone. And my concern is for those of us that call ourselves Christians, but who are trusting in the shakable, who find our identities in something shakable in this world. And as a result, we end up Refusing him who speaks. But it tells us don't do that. See to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. And as I, when I think about this, I think there are three ways that this typically happens, that we can refuse him who speaks. The first way is that we just don't know what he said. And so we, how can we do what he says if we don't know what he says? Right? The second is that we know what Jesus said, we want to follow, but maybe we just don't have the tools, the emotional capacity, the practical tools uh, to kind of follow through and put it into action. We know the what, but not necessarily the how. And then the third way is that we know what he says, we have the ability, but we're hard-hearted and we just refuse. We're stubborn. And I want to look at these three, and I want you to reflect on yourself and your life and your heart and your walk with Christ honestly, and see where are you refusing? 
Why is it? Because there's antidotes to these. So let's use them. We may each fall into these at different times and in different parts of our lives. So while you might be good in one area, maybe in this other spot over here you're refusing. So let's look at these closer. The first way that we refuse him who speaks because we uh, just don't know what he said really. And sadly, we often think we know what, we, what uh, he would say, but we don't first know what he already did say. Have you guys ever heard of the phrase, what would Jesus do? You've heard of that WWJD, right? It was everywhere. Basically, the idea is that when you're in a situation where you don't know what to do, you just ask, well, what would Jesus do? And then you do that, right? It used to be everywhere. WWJD. It would be on bracelets and T-shirts and coffee mugs and people get it tattooed on their, oh, maybe their chest or their arm somewhere, right? I even saw one time graffiti, WWJD, up on a big wall. I want to write, probably not graffiti. And I think this, the idea of WWJD, what would Jesus do, is commendable, but I think it's ill-fated because it's usually based on what we think Jesus was like and not who he showed himself to be throughout Scripture. And then, not surprisingly, when we ask what would Jesus do, it always seems to be right in line with what we personally would have done. And we see this continually in the American church, in the Western church, as denomination after denomination move further away from believing that, a, that Scripture is authoritative. Right? So they stop reading it, and they just imagine what Jesus would do, and then they go that way. And then they end up refusing to listen to what Jesus himself said. They stop reading it because they disagree with it. But shouldn't we expect that from the outset, that we don't think like Jesus? We don't agree with Jesus. Right? We think we should make all the money we want. That we should be able to do what we want with our bodies. That we should be able to call people idiots. And that we should hate people that do bad things. And we should do what makes us happy and really helps us to just come alive inside. Right? That's what we think. But if, if Jesus is our master, if he's our, our, the one that is in charge of us and teaching us and guiding us, then he's already given us correction for those thoughts. He says things like, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You cannot serve both God and money. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Never fully trust what you think Jesus is like. Instead of asking, what would Jesus do? Ask, what did Jesus already tell you to do? Only trust what Jesus shows himself to be and what he told you to do in Scripture. Read the Bible so that you can know what he's saying. And come to church so you can hear the word of God preached. What you think Jesus is like is completely shakable. But who he shows himself to be in Scripture is unshakable. Hold on to the unshakable because the shakable is going away. 
Now, the second way that uh, we can refuse him who speaks is that we know what he says. Right? We read the Bible. Uh, we come to church. We know what he says, and we want to follow. But maybe we just don't have the tools. We don't have the, uh, you know, the fortitude to really just put it to work all by ourselves, or we don't have the practical tools in place. So what do we do? We want to follow. What do we do? Well, a couple of things. I'm going to give you three things you should be doing if you want to put it into practice. The first is that we need the Holy Spirit's help. We cannot continually hold on to Christ without the Holy Spirit's help. We just can't. The Bible tells us that no one is good, not even one. We should say in parentheses, yeah, not even you, including you. You're not good, right? No one can do it. As much as you want to follow Jesus, you're imperfect. No one can do it alone. We need the Holy Spirit's help to obey and follow him. So pray for God to help you put it into action, right? He wants to help you put it into action. So pray for the gift of obedience. Ask God for that. It's a good gift to ask for. The next thing you need, if you want to put it into practice, is to surround yourself by helpful people that have walked the path beforehand. You know, we need mentorship. We need discipleship. We need accountability. And some of you have joined a house group here at the church in order to get some of that, get some of that accountability, right? But it is all too easy for us to go to those house groups and not be honest, right? To hide a little bit, to not let them in, to be resistant against Spiritual correction. And I want to encourage you all for your good to let these people that you're in your small group with fully into your walk with God. Give them access to parts of your life that are too tempting, that are just too hard for you to carry by yourself. We all have those parts, so give them over. Get some help carrying that. Let them show you from Scripture not just their own opinion, but from Scripture, how your thoughts and your actions might not actually be in line with what Jesus said. Let them help you not refuse the Lord. Everyone needs help to grow. Even Olympic athletes have coaches and training partners, right? And if they need it to develop the ability to endure on their sport running in circles, how much more do we need it to walk a straight and narrow path? So surround yourself with help. The third thing you need to do to put it into practice is be intentional. We need intentionality, okay? Holding on to the unshakable Jesus does not happen by accident. You notice, hopefully, in verse 25 of today's verse, of today's passage, it does not say, do not refuse. It says, see to it that you do not refuse. See to it, right? Make sure. Don't just hope for it. Don't just try. Instead... Do what it takes to not refuse. Go out of your way to make sure you don't refuse. Set up your life intentionally so that you aren't tempted to refuse either his grace or his commands. So I'll give you some practical examples of what I mean by this. We want to be very practical with our intentionality. A few examples. First one, uh, maybe if you struggle with coming to church regularly, right? That happens. Uh, so if that's a struggle for you, one practical, intentional thing you can do is join a service team or two. And that way on those Sundays when you uh, just want to stay home and don't feel like it, uh, you just happen to be scheduled for the cleaning team that day. So it keeps you accountable and it helps you to be intentional about not refusing the Lord, right? You take away that opportunity, okay? Another one is that even I struggle with tithing sometimes, right? If you struggle with tithing, 
set it up on auto withdrawal. So you don't have to face that temptation every month or every week of refusing to trust the Lord with your finances. So you intentionally make sure you don't refuse. See to it that that opportunity is gone. Okay? Or maybe, maybe you don't have the ability or the self-control to censor what you watch. If that's you, do what it takes to not refuse the Lord. Get rid of your smartphone. Get rid of your TV and your computer. Get a job in construction where you don't need a computer or something. People used to live like that, right? Even if it's extremely inconvenient, right? I'm not talking about tips for a happier life, okay? I'm talking about setting up your life intentionally so that you can follow Christ as good as you can without trusting the shakable, right? Whatever stops you from living as Christ wants you to, get rid of it, no matter what it is, even if it's extremely inconvenient. That is intentionality. So the second point that we're talking about, look, following Jesus is not a no-brainer all the time. So when you are looking for how to put it into practice, make sure you're reading the Bible, coming to church so you can hear the word preached, Surround yourself by helpful people and be intentional on how you set up your life so that you can grow in your ability to follow Christ so we don't refuse the one that speaks. All right, now the third way that we might refuse him who speaks. This is our third way, is that we know what he says, we have the ability, but we are hard-hearted, right? We're stubborn-hearted, and we just basically, we say no, essentially. We refuse. Some of you, have heard the gospel and the idea that you need a savior is offensive. The idea that he paid for your debt is a cop-out. The story of the resurrection is like some ancient mythological story or something. And the cost to follow him is too expensive. It's too much. It's too costly upon your life. And some of you have heard the gospel Again and again and again and again and again and again, and you drag your feet and you refuse and you refuse. Stop refusing. Take that step of faith. Rip it off like a band-aid. Put your faith in something that has actual consequence, actual staying power. We do it in such frivolous things all the time. Put it into something that has actual bite to it, that will last. Because no matter what else you're putting it in, it's all going to go away eventually. Right? And then there's others of us that want to follow Christ up to a point. And then we draw a line in the sand, right? And we get to something that is too costly. Something in this life that just seems so good. And like it would be uh, just going against who I am as a person to have that or do that or be a part of that. But we know Jesus said, that's not my way. That's not what I'm saying. And so we say, well, then... I'm, I need a timeout. I'm leaving. Or I'm going to go find a more palatable instruction. Something that works for me. Right? So I'm leaving. Or I'll hang out. I'll stay here, but pass on this one. Let's go to the next one. Right? But I ask you, please, hear the warning of that in today's passage. Right? Everything that was created is shakable. There's only ever been one thing on earth that wasn't created. Jesus. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, 
Prince of Peace. Everything but Jesus is shakable, and it will be removed. Make sure you don't refuse the one who's speaking. In today's passage, in Hebrews 12, that voice speaks with ultimate authority from the mountaintop, in verse 20, and with ultimate mercy from Jesus' blood, in verse 24. If you refuse one, you refuse the other. It's the same voice. You can't accept the mercy of his blood if you refuse the authority of his words. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew 7. He says, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But anyone who hears These words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Everything is shakable in your life. The big one is coming. Where are you building your house? On the sands of this shaking quaking, perishing world of ours or on the rock of Christ? Now, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song together called King of Kings. And it talks about how Jesus, in order to fulfill the promises he made in the Old Testament, came down from heaven, revealed his unshakable kingdom, died for our salvation, rose from the dead, and sent the Holy Spirit. It is a powerful, theologically rich song. And as we sing it, I want to leave you with the instructions that our chapter from the book of Hebrews ends with in order for us to truly endure. It tells us, starting in verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. God, consume us. Uh, Take all of us. Take all of it. Leave nothing behind. We know it's all going to be ashes anyways. Help us to not refuse you even one little bit, but to do everything possible for us to live in your unshakable kingdom. Help our hearts to worship you, Holy Spirit, with reverence and awe in our closing song and in every breath of our every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.